Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we are in Acts chapter 17 and 18 today. That is halfway through Paul's second missionary journey. Acts 16 covers the first leg or the first half of the second missionary journey. He gets into Macedonia, and we're going to pick up the second leg of that trip in Acts 17 and 18. And it's going to end just about the end of 18, but it's a little confusing. And this is the reason why it's so hard to to kind of find the breaking point, because right around the end of 18, around 22, 23, he actually ends the, the second missionary journey and begins the third missionary journey, but there's no hard chapter breaks there. So sometimes it kind of gets lost. So that's what we're going to see today. But before we do that, I want to uh, kind of keep up with the precedent that we set over the last few weeks. And that is that you get a mental image. Um, I'm going to show you a, a map, but that you will be able to kind of embed that into your mind as we're reading through. So some of these places that may seem unfamiliar to you, you'll have a quick callback as we read it because I'm going to show you where they are. So let's go to the map. Now, last week, the map started here in Antioch. This was the beginning of the second missionary journey. The orange line is the first leg from Acts 16. The purple line is Acts 17 and 18, where we're going today. So he starts in Antioch. This is probably around late 40s, early 50s AD. He travels from Antioch up to Derby to Lystra to check on the churches he planted on the first missionary journey. While he's there, he picks up a young man named Timothy. Him, Silas, Timothy, they start traveling north. They're trying to decide, should we go uh, west over here into the Asia province? Should we go north up into Bithynia? We're told in Acts 16 that the Lord is closing doors in both of those areas and drives them, continue north and then west, and they end up in Troas. They stop in Troas, and that night, Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia. That's this region over here. It would have been considered Europe at that time. Macedonia, there's a man in his vision, and he's saying, Paul, come over here. He's standing on the shore, and he's doing one of these with his arms. Come over here. So Paul's like, all right, we've got doors shut, and now one's opening, we're going to walk through it. So they travel up here to uh, Samothrace, which is this island, and then they go up to Philippi. This is all Acts 16, and this is what we covered last week. We're going to begin Acts 17 in just a moment, and this is where they're going to travel in Acts 17. They first leave Philippi. This is where they were arrested. Uh, this is where the, they were singing hymns in the middle of the night. The earthquake uh, took place, and the prison doors were flung wide open. The jailer got set free, and then Paul said, hey, you treated us poorly, and we're Roman citizens, so he made the magistrates come and apologize. So they're leaving on good terms. They leave Philippi. They head to Thessalonica, which is right around here. Then they head down to Berea. 
Then they're going to then they're going to, Paul's going to split off and he's going to leave Timothy and Silas up in here in Berea. And he's going to travel down here to Athens and he's going to wait for Timothy and Silas to meet him up in Corinth. And while he's in Athens, he preaches a pretty famous sermon. We'll cover that today. He goes over from Athens to Corinth. He stays in Corinth for a year and a half. And then from Corinth, he travels over to Ephesus. He stays in Ephesus only for a few days to maybe a week or two. They ask him to stay longer. He says, I've got to get back. Uh, we find out later he's got to get back to uh, Jerusalem. He's going to end up in Antioch, but we can read into the text and also from church history that one of the desires he's had was to get back to Jerusalem, probably for a festival, most likely because of the time of year that it was Passover. He wants to get back to Jerusalem for the Passover. So he leaves Ephesus only after a, a short time. He heads down to Caesarea to Port City. He goes down to Jerusalem. He goes back up to Antioch. This is just about the end of Acts 18. And then we're told he picks right back up and he travels back to these other cities to check on the churches again. And he ends up at Ephesus and that is his third missionary journey. He is a traveling fool. <laughs> He's all over the map. And so what I want you to kind of visualize today is the part of the world. This is Turkey, okay? Greece, modern day. This is Israel down here. I want you to kind of just commit to memory some of these locations and the plot that he's taking as we go into the text in Acts chapter 17 and 18, and I will post this on Slack afterwards for reference purposes. But let's get into it, Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1. It says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So he's leaving Philippi, he's traveling through these two little regions. He comes into Thessalonica. And there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, it's three Saturdays, so for three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I proclaim, he's the Christ. He's the Christ from Isaiah. He's the Christ that Moses was talking about. He's the, 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 the anointed one, the son of man that Daniel was talking about. He's the, uh, the anointed one that all of the minor prophets are, are, are referencing about. This is the guy. He's the one we've been waiting for. It's Jesus. Verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Now, we're over in Macedonia, and women have different rights than they do in other parts of the Roman world and certainly other parts of the Middle Eastern world. Women were allowed to own property. They had some voting rights. And so they're called out in this section as coming to saving faith. But the Jews, man, they were jealous. And they were taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason where they were staying at, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. But they weren't there when they could not find them. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them 
And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar. And some of them are actually saying there's another king and his name is Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now let's pause and dissect what's taking place in the first city they stop in after Philippi, Thessalonica. The missionary team leaves Philippi. They're on good terms. They enter into the city Thessalonica. And we're told that in verse 2, Paul reasoned with the Jews. That word reasoned is the same word that Luke uses to describe Jesus opening the Scriptures to the people on the road to Emmaus. There's this idea that when I'm sharing and when I'm dialoguing and I'm having a conversation with you about the Scriptures, your mind is illuminated. It's opened in a way that it wasn't open before. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, and one of the ways that takes place is by having conversations surrounding this, the Word of God. So Paul is reasoning with these guys, and they're having these dialogues and these conversations, And we can read into what's also taking place here because Paul wrote a letter to this church much later called 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Now your homework this week is to go and read 1st and 2nd Thessalonians because it was written shortly after he left this city. It references Timothy staying in the area and getting some good news about the church plant being healthy and successful in the region. But what we can surmise from that letter in 1 Thessalonians 2.9 is that while he was there, he worked day and night. Now we know that he was a tent maker by trade. We're going to find that out in a little bit. And when he would go into the town, he didn't spend all of his free time just having conversations in the synagogues. He would do that regularly on the Sabbath. But what would he do the other six days of the week? He worked. He'd repair people's tents. He would do patchwork on people's tents. He'd build new tents and sell it to people. He worked day and night. And he references in 1 Thessalonians how he worked day and night alongside of these people. And what we're walking away with is this picture of the way that Paul did evangelism. He would go into the synagogues and he would have these conversations with people on a regular basis. He'd reason with them from the scriptures. But that's not all he would do. During the week, he would go to work and he would work alongside of these people so the people could examine his transformed life. So they could listen the way he talked at work. So they could listen to the kind of language he used at work. So they could listen to the kind of things that he thought were important when it was time to go take lunch. So they could watch where he spent his money and where he spent his time and what his affections were set on. He worked alongside of the people in Thessalonica. And I think this strategy speaks to how we can effectively share the gospel today. The most effective way to share the gospel is not to tell your unsaved friends, come to my church on Sunday morning and listen to my pastor preach the gospel to you. That's not the most effective form of evangelism. The most effective form of evangelism is for you to share the gospel, to reason with, to open the scriptures with the people that you work with, that you go to school with, that you live next to 
all the time. If this truly is the thing that you treasure above all other things, it should be the thing that you are sharing and talking about the most. We see this from the life of Paul, and we should see this in our life too. There is something to be said about sharing the gospel at work. Well, (laughs) you don't know my work. I could get fired for that. Can I submit to you that one of the greatest things that you could ever hear standing before your maker one day, when you tell him, I got fired for sharing Jesus, is his response, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into paradise. Listen, I know that on your check, somebody's signature is on it. But that signature was made possible by a God in heaven who created the person who wrote that signature. We have a fear deep down inside of us that if the people around us are not in place, if the systems and the structures are not working, then somehow we're gonna fall apart and our safety and our security rests in those systems. And I've got news for you. Our God was offering, offering safety and security long before any systems were ever created in the country that we live in today. Your God is the provider of your needs. And you say, well, <laughs> well, he's not the one depositing money into the bank account. Well, who do you think made possible that job that you got? Because he could have simply just said, I don't want you working there and I'm going to close doors and it doesn't matter what you do, you're not going to work there. But I'm going to open some doors and it just kind of, it's going to feel like it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to work there. He's in control, but we don't live like he's in control. And so what I'm saying to you is that there should be a freedom that we live with in order to share the thing that we treasure most with the people who are the closest with us without any fear that there will be repercussions. There might be repercussions, but if there is, I promise you, your heavenly Father has already made provisions for those. So do what he's asked us to do and share the gospel. Now it wasn't long before repercussions started taking place where Paul was at, because we find out that in verse five, the Jews were jealous. And it's interesting because Paul references what takes place in 1 Thessalonians 2, 18, and he doesn't say that the men, <clears throat> the angry Jews, the rabble, they were the ones who caused the stir and forced me out and caused me not to come back and see you. He describes the work that we see in verse 5 in 1 Thessalonians 2, 18 as the challenge and the work of Satan himself. Well, that kind of shapes your theology a little bit, doesn't it? It frames for us that the kingdom of darkness is actively working in the lives of some people to thwart the furthering of the gospel. That's a thing. It happens. Paul is calling it out here, and it's a reminder to us that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. There is a dark kingdom who does not want people being transformed and saved and moved from darkness into marvelous light. He wants to continue his ownership on the darkness of this world to further the destruction and the calamity 
of God's creation. So it's in his best interest to thwart the work, and he does it any way he can. And in this particular circumstance, he did it in the hearts of a bunch of jealous men who hired a mob to go to the house of Jason to arrest these missionaries. But they weren't there, so they arrested Jason instead. Jason is brought before the authorities, and we're told that Jason paid off the officials on behalf of the missionaries, presumably with the promise that these guys will leave the city and not cause any more trouble. So he pays the fine on behalf of these people. Everyone is let go, and we're told at the end of verse 9 that they let them go, and the brothers in verse 10 are immediately sent away in the night. Let's pick up there in verse 10. It says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews who were more noble than the, those in Thessalonica, what does that word noble mean? It basically is a word that means um, respecting, open, open-minded, more willing to listen. Now Berea is kind of a not a backwater town, but it's kind of like a country town. If you think of Thessalonica like in Atlanta, think of Berea kind of like a Thomasville. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? These are country folk. <laughs> and by God, they're more noble than those in the city. So they receive the word with all eagerness and they're examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. You're telling us, but I'm not just going to listen to you because I'm smart and I'm not going to let you sell me something I don't need. So you're telling, I'm going to go home and I'm going to read this. I'm going to go through it. They're searching the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. And many of them, therefore, because, therefore, what they were doing, because they were searching, they believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. So the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there to continue the planting work and make sure that things got off on the right foot. You gotta identify strong leaders to lead these churches, you gotta teach them sound doctrine, you gotta make sure that they are rooted. Verse 15, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Timothy and Silas hung back up in the Macedonian region around Berea. They probably also went back to Thessalonica. They're checking on those churches they just planted, and then they're going to come down to Athens. Let's pause there. Because what we see Paul doing in Berea is very similar to what we see him doing in Thessalonica, but I want to add one point to it. We see in Thessalonica, Luke emphasizes that he is reasoning and he's working with these people. He's spending a lot of time in here, you know, uh, opening the scriptures and, and working alongside of them. But in Berea, the emphasis is not, is not just on the working alongside of the emphasis is on the way he opened the scriptures. And the emphasis there is on the scriptures. And this is what I want to call our attention to. Because the way that Paul is evangelizing here is fruitful because he understands the starting point of his audience. These 
are Jews. They're familiar with the scripture. They have a high view of scripture. They believe to some extent the entirety of the Old Testament scripture. And so Paul has a natural starting place in evangelizing. He's saying, hey, you know that thing that we've always learned about when Daniel is talking about the son of man, he sees this vision of this, this God-like man. Let me tell you who that guy is. And they're like, oh, okay, well, let me go home and let me study, let me read about that. Let me be diligent to pursue the study and see if what you're saying is true, but I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna come to the conclusion that what you're saying is true. But the point is that he started with the scriptures. And I would say that when it comes to evangelism, a great place to start is scripture. It's the reason why when, we're, when, I, when I'm forming sermons um, uh, for study on a Sunday morning, I try as hard as I can to just start from scripture. It's one of the le- reasons why we lean so heavily on just studying books. It's not that we don't study series that are outside of the book, that are sometimes rooted in the book. But if, I, I feel like if your study and your evangelism isn't rooted in scripture, you're gonna end up in a place that may not necessarily be where God wants you to be. If you don't start with scripture and let it inform you, you run the risk of starting from your own personal experience and what you think, and then you start reading things into scripture that may not necessarily be there. Are you following where I'm going? So when Paul shows up to a city and he's dealing with the Jews, he reads his audience, he understands the context for them, and he says the best place for me to start evangelistically is the scripture. Let me show you how these prophets were pointing to Jesus. Now that raises an interesting question. Because not everyone that you meet and not everyone that Paul meets holds a very high view of Scripture. Some people don't even believe in Scripture. Some people don't even believe there is a God. Some people believe that we all got here through scientific means and there's, uh, you know, there's this, this concept of this big bang and then there's evolution involved. So, If we're gonna evangelize effectively, where do you start with someone who has no view of scripture? They don't hold it in a high regard and they don't even believe that it holds any weight or merit. Well, Paul addresses that question, I believe, when he gets into Athens. Athens is a city that's got more idols than people. And when he shows up, he finds a huge city filled with people who don't have any view reference or knowledge for scripture. Let's see where he starts and how he evangelizes there. Go to verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for the two boys, uh, Timothy and Silas, for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city full of idols. Now, when I say full of idols, I mean full of idols. At this time period in history, based off of historical record, there was probably about 10,000 people or so living in the city, and the city had around 30,000 idols. That's a three to one. 30,000 idols in a city of 10,000 people. So he reasoned in the synagogue, so he started in the place where they have a high view of Scripture, and he's reasoning with those who happened to be there. 
He talked with the Jews and devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. That's the end of 17. So he's talking in the synagogue. He's talking in the marketplace. He's starting from a place of scripture with the people who would know what he's talking about. But those weren't the only people listening. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So they're overhearing him starting with scripture and they're listening like, okay, well, I'm, I'm not familiar with any of this. I haven't heard any of this before. So, so some of them are saying, what does this babbler wish to say? Now, babbler was um, a slang derogatory term. It actually meant a retailer of secondhand scraps of philosophy. What does this babbler, what does this uh, snake oil salesman have to say? He doesn't know anything about philosophy. He doesn't even know who half these 30,000 gods are. We don't either, but that's not important. Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him in, they brought him before the Areopagus, which is a location and it's also a council of people. And he says, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's really important for what's about to happen next. Because Paul's strategy is to not start evangelistically in this place with Scripture. He actually starts with something else. He's being called essentially a great value philosopher. He's bringing no real value to any of this stuff. So, but, but we enjoy hearing something new. We, we like getting on our phones and reading the newest thing that somebody posted. We're not in it for life transformation. I don't hold a social media account because I want to have a changed life. And I'm interested in people who hold different views, sharing with me something that I've never heard of before that will cause me to consider changing my life. That's not why we're on it. We're on it to laugh at videos of cats, <laughs> to find out what the celebrities that we can't stand or that we love are sharing about their lives so that we could vicariously live through them. That's why we're on it. We like listening to new things, and this is what the city of Athens was like. It was filled with people who love spending their time listening to something new, not transformational, not for the purpose of being different or considering that I might need to repent of my life. No, I'm just, what are you... What do you've got for us? What's new? Let's hear something we haven't heard before. So Paul, he stands before these guys and he shares the gospel, but he doesn't start from a place of scripture. Let's see how he does it. Verse 22, it says, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I'm here to proclaim to you. I can tell you who this unknown God is. Then God, excuse me, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, as we go through this, I want you to pay attention to theologically how he arranges this argument. All of this is true. All of this is rooted in Scripture. But he's not using Scripture as a starting point for this. He's appealing to their desire for transcendence. They're convinced that whatever is most important in life isn't this tangible stuff that we're living and we're experiencing. There's got to be something more. And so we're going to pursue that more, that extra, that transcendence. We're going to pursue it through all these other gods. And we're not sure which one, so we're just going to cover the whole place with them so that we don't miss anybody. So Paul comes in and he explains, he's like, look, there is one God who's over all. And let me give you some facts about him. So the strategy he's using is important, and that's what I'm going to lean in on today. But I don't want you to lose the fact that there is root meat right here for you in what he's saying. And what I mean by that is when he's saying that God is not served by human hands as though he needs something, that should inform the way that you live your life. You're not doing God any favors. He's not waiting on you before he can act. Because he doesn't, like, there is literally, he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's not served by human hands. He's not sitting around waiting on us. So let's continue verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And not only did he make every person you see today from one man, he determined when all of those men and women would live the allotted periods, and he determined where they would live their boundaries and their dwelling places. Have you ever considered the fact that God has decided where you would live and when you would live? He's in charge of that. Verse 27 These people that he had created and established in periods of time and gave their boundaries and their dwelling places, he did that so that they would seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And then Paul starts quoting some of their prophets. It would be like him using a popular song on the radio. Poetry. It's prominent at the time to reinforce truths. The point he's making is you guys are on to something and I can hear it in the poetry and the music and I can see it in the way that you inscript your idols when I'm walking into town. So let me connect some dots for you. And he quotes, he says, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You're on to something. Being then God's offspring, <clears throat> if that's true, and you can agree with that, I'll, I'll, I'll take this one thing, we have differing views here, but I'll take this one thing that you're onto that is true, and I'm going to build on that one thing, okay? If we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man, See, the times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed, this is, this is why you have to repent. Because he has fixed a day on his calendar on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And how will he judge the world in righteousness? By a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus. Whew, that's a good sermon, right? That's got all the good stuff. And he didn't even, his starting point wasn't even scripture. He used their, their, some misconceptions that they had, and he built on those truths, and he just pointed it straight back to Jesus. That's a good sermon. How do they respond? Verse 32, and when they had heard the resurrection of the dead, some of them started mocking. Ah, you've gone too far. I'll talk about resurrection of the dead. But some, some of them said, we'll, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst. We're going to find out later that he was discouraged. Some men, not a lot, but some, joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus the Arapagate, so one of the leaders of this um, council, and a woman named Damaris, and a few others with them. And let's pause right there. Because I asked the question, where, where do you start? How do you evangelize? How do you share the gospel with someone who has no reference point for Scripture, who doesn't hold Scripture in a high view? Well, the way Paul does it is he comes into, into town and he says, I see you have an idol with no name on it. Let me tell you the God's name. There's a lot of things that you've got wrong, but there are a few things that you've got right, and I'm going to build on those things. I can put truth on that solid foundation because essentially you got that foundation from him. You're kind of finding your way, and some things you can kind of get your hand on, and some you're just way off on. So let me bring some perspective. The perspective I want to bring to you is two main points. God has created everything that you see. And there's coming a day, a day when he will judge everything we see. That's the sermon. And the God that will judge everything that you see, you, you've, you've, you've said he's the God of the unknown. You're not sure his name. Let me tell you his name. His name is Jesus. And God's going to, he, he, you, you can guarantee that he is going to judge because he did what he said he did before. See, he says he's going to judge the earth. How do you know that what he says is true? Because he also said he was going to raise his son from the dead, and he did that one thing. And if he raised his son from the dead, you can be sure that he will come and judge the earth. So what do you have to do? You have to repent of the things he's coming to judge the earth for and accept Jesus as your Savior. That's the sermon. The problem is that as we read through this story, even though it's a solid gospel presentation with people who are unfamiliar with scripture, most of them mocked them and were told that not many were saved. So the question we have to ask is, is Paul's strategy flawed? Should we never start evangelizing with someone outside them from the foundation of scripture, even if they hold no view of scripture, because what we're reading here is that Paul didn't have very much fruit from it. Is the issue Paul's strategy or is the issue that these people didn't care? They didn't care to begin with. I would argue that the strategy was not necessarily flawed. I would argue that the gospel is not a philosophy. It is us coming to the place where we realize that we have been created and we will be judged and something needs to be done about that. 
It is not a collection of good things you can do for your life. It is not a way to have a happier, better life. It is not a way to get more money. It is not a way to feel better about yourself. It is not even just a way for you to spend eternity in paradise. It is a way for you to be atoned for your sins and to be adopted into a family when you were a a, a nobody out in darkness. It is, the offer is turn and repent and bury it all and you will be resurrected into a brand new eternal life. That's the offer and that's transformational. And that offer, Paul presented, not even starting with scripture, to a group of people who it seems pretty clear didn't want to listen to that in the first place because we are told right back in verse 21 that they loved spending their time telling and hearing something new. So I would argue that just because the strategy was unfruitful in Athens because the audience didn't really want transformation doesn't mean it's a strategy that we should toss out. So there are two primary forms of evangelism, strategies for evangelism. One starts from the place of scripture. You have some understanding of the Bible. You have some awareness that there is a God. Let me walk you through what scripture says about this God. And there are some people who have no context for God whatsoever. They don't even believe he exists. They don't believe that there is any weight or merit to scripture. Where do you start evangelizing with these people? You contextualize. Now that's a tough word because it's been borrowed by different corners of Christianity. When I say contextualization, some people immediately start hearing, oh, well, we're going to water down the gospel. We're going to change what it says just so that you listen to it. That's not what I'm talking about. When I say contextualization, I'm addressing what Paul is using here by reading his audience and understanding there are some things that you have true about life, and I'm going to connect the dots to you so that the end is Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. If I'm gonna share the gospel with somebody who is an addict, the thing I am going to emphasize the most is that Jesus has come to set you free. That is true. It is not the only thing that is true, but it is the thing that is true and most important for where this person starts right now. So if they have no view of scripture and they're not interested in even believing that there is a God, the offer to that person is that there is a way to be free. You want to be free? I'm going to, I'm going to use that as a foundation to start building truth on top of. You familiar? Are you following me? That's one example. Let me give you another example. If I'm going to share the gospel with somebody in the LGBTQ community, one of the core foundations to that community is identity. They're searching for an identity. And what they want and what they believe is that their identity is deeply rooted in sexuality. I have an identity because of who I'm attracted to. That is the core of that community's belief. So if I want to share the gospel with that community, one of the first things I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to, to contextualize and I'm going to lay the foundation that their appeal for identity can be satisfied outside of sexual means. Your identity doesn't have to be rooted in sex. 
Your identity became rooted in something completely different, something much greater than just sex. Your identity can be rooted in being adopted into a family and having a heavenly father. Are you seeing where I'm going with this? What Paul is doing here is helpful for us because it gives us context for how we're supposed to be sharing the gospel when we reason with people in our homes over a meal or at work. For some folks, it is enough to start with their desire to want to seek out some God. They're searching and they believe that there is some higher power. Let me walk you through the scriptures. Let me reason with you. And there are some people who are just deeply offended by the idea that there is scripture, that there is anything in the world that would tell you that it has authority over your own personal feelings. So in order to share the gospel with someone like that, I contextualize by identifying what it is that they're seeking the most and I show them how Jesus satisfies that and more. I'm not just gonna end at identity. I'm not just gonna end at being free from addiction because there is so much more, but I'm gonna take that appeal that you have, that one thing that you want, I'm gonna start there and I'm gonna build a solid foundation on that. Are you you following me? So this is what he's doing when he's sharing the gospel. Now let's go to chapter 18. We're gonna pick up in verse one. So after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently had come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all of the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, tent making, he stayed with them and worked for they were both tent makers by trade. So he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus, and they opposed and reviled him. And so he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I'm innocent. From now on, I will go out to the Gentiles. Now, just a sidebar, what is, what, is the, what does that mean, I'm shaking out my garments? What does it look like when you're kicking off all the dirt off of your boots when you're leaving someone? It's a Jewish way of saying, I don't even want a speck of dust from this place on me. Get it all off. You don't want anything I have to say? I'm getting every ounce, every fleck of this place off, and I'm walking away, and I'm saying you're on your own because the truth was here and you don't want any part of it. That's what's happening here. So he leaves incredibly frustrated because he's preaching to his own people and city after city after city, all his own people do is form mobs to kick him out of the city. These are his own people. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Together, his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. But Paul is still frustrated. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid. Why would he say don't be afraid? Because Paul was afraid. What was he afraid of? He was afraid that every city he went into and continued to preach the gospel, it always resulted in the same thing, being beaten. And while he was willing to take anything for the gospel, beating a man does take its toll. 
He says, don't be afraid. I want you to keep on speaking. I don't want you to be silent for I'm with you. And I want you to know that no one will attack you to harm you. There it is. For I have many in this city who are my people. So because of that, Paul says, verse 11, Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. In a city where he had just shook off his coat and said, I don't want anything to do with you, he stays a year and a half. Now what's going on here? Now we know from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, that when Paul says that he first came to Corinth, he was exhausted. He was afraid. He was weak. He was weak from all the beating. He was exhausted from the philosophers in Athens. He had just come from that city. He had tried to share the gospel with them and nobody was interested in listening because all they wanted to do was hear the new thing. He was reviled and mocked by his own people. He was weary from the work of church planting. But something wonderful happens when he's weary from the work of God. Our God comes in and comforts him. Now hear me. Because some of you in here have not experienced what Paul is going through. You haven't been beaten in multiple cities. You haven't been fired from your job for sharing the gospel multiple times. You haven't been thrown into prison only to be singing the praises and to watch an earthquake break you out of jail. Going to your own people, constantly sharing the gospel and being spit on, rocks thrown at you. But you have had some level of frustration and weariness in the life of a church, for example. Maybe this isn't your first church. And you've been hurt previously at numerous places and it's made you weary and apprehensive about getting involved in any church in the future because they only want two things, all of your time and all of your money. I get it, I get it. Well, I've got good news for you. Because at your weariest moment, our God does something remarkable and that is he offers comfort. But he offers it in a way that you probably would not have anticipated. Look at how God offers, com offers comfort to Paul. He offers, he offers comfort to Paul through friendship. He gives them this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who become good friends to him, and they strengthen one another in their work. He comforts them when Timothy eventually comes back down from Macedonia with great news, and we know this in 1 Thessalonians, with Timothy finally arrived, he brings great news. Hey, the churches in Macedonia are doing great. They're, they're, they're blowing up. People are getting saved left and right. In fact, the church in Philippi, they, brought, they, they collected this money and they, they, they sent it with me to give to you as an offering to offset some of your traveling expenses in ministry. So God comforts the weary Paul through friendship, he comforts the weary Paul through good news that churches are growing and thriving, and he comforts Paul with a word and a vision. He comes to him and says, don't be afraid, I'm with you. And those three things combine together, the good news from Timothy, the word from the Lord. The idea that he's got friends to do this work with is enough to strengthen his soul, and he spends another a year and a half in Corinth doing ministry. Well, just as a side note, I understand the value of some of these things. <clears throat> it can get exhausting doing the work of ministry. 
very much so for a pastor, but I can tell you, identify with what Paul is going through here in the ways that God brings comfort. In the early years of Red Hills Church, sometimes there were, there were some days when the only thing that got me through it was knowing that I had some people to do it with, primarily my friends Chad and Christy Wilson. They were the first people who were with us when we planted this church in some of the early days when it's like four, we're having service in four o'clock in the afternoon in a shopping center and it's, that's nap time. So half the people are sleeping during your sermon. And you're just like, man, am I, am I really doing what God has called me to do? You know what, it's all right. Because I've got these people who are my friends and I'm doing it with them. And it strengthens your bones to know that you're not doing this alone. I look around and I see some of the people who've, who've been there. Josh and Kelsey Turner. They were there the very first Sunday in my living room and I, they're, they're, there they are. Just seeing in their eyes, we're, we, we love it. The value of friendship is there's no price on it. But also the value of things transpiring that God is behind as you move along. Slack is one of the most valuable things for our church right? Because it gives us some way to real time share what God is doing. Because there's something that's just like, okay, well, I don't want to like text somebody because that's kind of like personal. Maybe they're at work and there's just this sense of like, that's really personal. So I don't know, I don't want to text. And I don't want to send an email because that's too formal. If there was only this like middle of the road thing to just kind of just share with the people that I love and cherish the most, that God is transforming my life and I'm not the same way I was last week, that I read something today that transformed my life. That's what Slack is for. And as a pastor watching this transpire and being able to be connected by just somebody sharing a quick post or somebody sharing, hey, I just say, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Thank you. I was really going through it today. Man, that just kind of builds you up. So friendship is important. Hearing the good news of what God is doing is phenomenal. But man, there is nothing like just getting on your face and spending time with the Lord and letting Him bring encouragement as well. Now, why are all these things being wrapped up for us together? <clears throat> Before I answer that question, let me finish this section. I, I, let's pause. I don't want to read through it. Let me just summarize what's happening in verses 12 through 23, because most of it is just travel itinerary. Paul, that word that God gave, is tested. Paul's called in before a council, and he's immediately let off. The Roman um, uh, official who's in charge of that region, he basically tells the Jews, leave these guys alone. And it sets a precedent for the next few years that most court cases don't go anywhere when Christians are accused of raising a ruckus in a town. So Paul leaves Corinth. He travels over to Ephesus, he stays there for a brief time, and then we're told that he travels back down to Caesarea. We're told that he goes up to visit the church. We know that that's Jerusalem, because there's only one place you go up to. Jerusalem is, um, the elevation is actually higher because it's sitting on a mountain, but it's also the city of God. So no Jewish person would ever say, I'm gonna go down to Jerusalem. I'm going up to visit the church. And then he went down to Antioch and he completes his journey. But the question I'm asking is why is it important for us to understand that there is 
a a way to share the gospel that is rooted and starts in scripture. There is a way to share the gospel that is with someone who has no roots in scripture. And there is confidence that God can send your way in the middle of being weary. Because we have one mission while we're here on earth. And that is to be a mobile temple for the presence of God everywhere we go. The Spirit of God has filled you and everywhere you go, you are a mountain that is calling people to come and repent. You do that just by being where you are and where you're living, where you're living, and you do that by sharing the gospel. And sometimes you share the gospel by starting with scripture, and sometimes you share the gospel by just referencing how this song builds some truth that eventually points to Jesus. But in all of that work, it can get incredibly weary when this world just can't get over the fact that they have a greater affection for things that were made by people than a God who made those people. It is exhausting going to a family reunion and sharing with people what you treasure most and them not caring what you treasure about. It is exhausting going to work and knowing that your entire life is being dictated and, and, and motivated by the treasures of this book and you sit in a staff meeting and the only thing that they talk about is how can we sell things to people that they don't need and how can we turn a profit for this company. It's exhausting to know that you are a missionary in the fields of Tallahassee but to know that most of this city doesn't want anything to do with what you treasure most. So why are these two things together in 17 and 18? Because the mission is treasure Jesus above all things and share him with everyone, but know that in the midst of it, it is exhausting and your God fills you. There is an understanding, I think, in the culture that we live in today that it is okay if you're a Christian as long as you don't really do anything with it. You, it's fine. You, you, you can be a Christian. You can practice some of the core beliefs. Just don't give your whole life to it. Don't be wild and radical about it. It's fine if you want to teach your kids about Jesus, but leave it at home. Don't bring that stuff to school. Don't bring that stuff to work. If you want to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and he's offering salvation to you and your family, that's fine. It just better not affect your speech or the way that you live or the way that you work or the way that you parade yourself in a public space. Do whatever you want. That's fine. Just keep it to yourself. I don't want any part of it. The problem is that that idea doesn't exist anywhere in Scripture. The examples that we get from Paul, from Lydia, from Timothy, from Barnabas, from the jailer in Philippi, from the Bereans, from the Corinthians. The takeaway we get from Scripture is that the the, the entire chapter of Hebrews 11, what we walk away with from Scripture is that we are counted among a group of people who have been so profoundly transformed by what God did on our behalf that we can't help but change our lives and tell everybody about it. And if we're not telling people about it, I ask humbly, has he really changed your life? Or is your life 
pretty much the same as it was before you ever met him. Because if things aren't radically different, if you aren't surrendered on a daily basis, if you aren't giving your heart to the affections of him, a Colossians 3, fixing your heart and your mind on the things above and not on the things of this earth, you seriously should ask yourself, am I really a follower of Jesus? Because if I treasure this the way these people treasured this, I should be a little more vocal about the way I talk about it and the way I live it out. And on that challenge, let's close in prayer. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.